Elizabeth Stinkney is a spiritual counselor, a meditation teacher, a body worker, and she collaborates in educational situations with teachers and parents to help create healthy learning environments, amongst many other talents she has. She's generously connected today with us to share some tools we can use to give to our students and children so that emotional and mental health becomes a habit, a routine in our lives. We're going to be able to expel angst from the physical body so that our children and students can move forward from whatever trauma they may or may not have had, be conscientious, self-aware, and proactive global citizens of the world. Rain also strongly believes in inclusivity, and she'll talk about that as well and what we as educators parents and teachers, can do to model acceptance and celebrate diversity, which I'm sure most of you already do. But some reminders never hurt. Rain shares some very personal events of her childhood and has given me permission to include them so that we all understand that she has reached the peace that she now has in her life from very real and challenging events in her past. What happened to her growing up, she explains, became a part of her very physiology. And unfortunately, this is happening, it happened, or it might happen to our students and children. If we recognize this, we can become the resource the people around us need to be in positive and healthy situations, both inside and outside of school. And Rain asks us to see even very young children as people because it reminds us to treat them as fully deserving beings in the world. Again, I'm sure that most of us do, but we can never hear that enough. At the end, I'll review some of her simple yet powerful techniques, and you'll be able to download them as well from the show notes. You can see how they transform the emotional environment of the class, and you'll also get some activities to use this podcast in your lessons. Now let's welcome Rain and hear her quiet but deeply charged words. Well, I really appreciate your being here. You know that I'll do the introduction later. You're going to do most of the talking, but if you don't mind, I'd like to set this up because it's a little special. I haven't done anything on mindfulness and I, because you're the master, and you are the person that I think of when I want teachers to know some strategies, some tools of helping their students find themselves, be a little more self-aware, be able to sort of soak in learning. So how I wanted to begin is this. I wanted, I'd love to give parents and teachers some tools to introduce mindfulness into their classes. I used to do workshops on the effective domain long before the pandemic. And the pandemic is sort of a a turning point in a lot of teachers' lives, a lot of parents' lives. But long before the pandemic, I was giving workshops on the effective domain, which is about creating intentional learning environments. If we don't have students that feel comfortable in our learning environment, there is no real deep learning going on, or it happens a lot less. And during the pandemic, I think a lot more people realize that how important the emotions of our students and our children are. And if we don't deal with that at first, if that isn't our primary concern, then the curriculum really doesn't matter. So teachers are now dealing with the after effects of the pandemic and the after Mm -hmm. effects of children being out of the classroom and at home. And you know very well that at times the home is not a safe place to be. And so Mm -hmm. not having the mitigating force of a classroom, because things are going on in the home, trauma at home can be mitigated in the classroom if we have teachers who are prepared for that. 
the teachers are still finding that students have a lot of fear in their lives and they don't know how to deal with trauma. So what I'm hoping for you is that if I present you with different situations, children with diversity, with different special needs, are there tools that you could suggest that would help them find some sort of center in their lives? And one more thing I'll say is that you know that I had a very challenging upbringing. Mm -hmm. And because of that, my teachers at that time, this is a long time ago, my teachers did not have these tools and did not know how important the emotions and the mental health of students were. And so I felt like a shell most of my life. I felt that I really didn't, my who I was was not reflected back at me at home. And so I think that if I had these tools and if my teachers had given me these tools when I was younger, I might have been more confident growing up. I might have been more self-aware, more positive functioning person in the universe. Mm. So that's what I'm hoping. So how does that sound to you? Well, it sounds amazing and miraculous. And if everybody could approach the classroom in such a way, we would surely have a change in the world for the better all the way through which includes the teachers and the body of administrators in a school, as well as the children, and maybe even reaching their families and their parents. Well, let's go. And if you could just tell us a little bit about your history, about your practice in meditation, because when I talk to you, my whole New York speed goes way down to what it should be. I feel like <laughs> when you speak, you're speaking from the earth. And so I really appreciate who you are, but let's tell the listeners who you are, what your background is and how you came to these practices. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, first of all, there is no right speed or should about speed. And I love your speed. I can keep up with your pace. And it is true. I speak slow. I eat slow. I am very naturally mindful. And the way that came about is that my parents met while studying Tibetan Buddhism at Naropa Institute in the 70s um, in Boulder, Colorado. And that was a time of that institute where it was only a Tibetan Bud Buddhism school. It wasn't yet the university that it is today, um, which encompasses many different subjects. You can get more of a regular degree with the slant of Tibetan Buddhism, but they were really drawn already steeped in the wisdom of Tibetan Buddhism and they met there. And that's where I was conceived. And so I had this beginning of meditation and spiritual inquiry by just being my parents' child and what their interests were. So I grew up watching them, witnessing them meditate. For me, it wasn't so much of a word about meditation. It was more being in their practice because that's what our home was about. So I was a child and I would play and climb all over them while they were having their sitting practice. And I thought it was great fun. Like these two adults sitting cross-legged on cushions. And I had my own little cushion that my mother had made for me out of an Indian tapestry and a piece of foam. And I, it was just a playground for me. It was just this beautiful shift of consciousness into presence and I played like any little child would play. But I also learned that that was an option to sit quietly and to pay attention, to focus on breath, to do. My father was very into yoga, so he would have his yoga practice every day. So these examples hit me in a place that was probably innate to who I am. And I had the nurture from them to 
join together who I was and what I was being given. And that worked for me. And the reason why I emphasize what might be innate in myself is because I have many brothers and sisters. And although they are all spiritual in different ways, they are not all meditation teachers. So we all are born with something, I believe, and our, whoever nurtures us also has an impact on what we decide to do in the world. So when you say it became it was an option that mindfulness or meditation and yoga is an option, when did you realize that? By seeing the family life of others, your friends? Well, my family life becomes um, very roller coaster-like because my mom left when I was four and my father quickly remarried. And I had a step family, not just a stepmom, but also three step siblings just within a couple of months of my mom leaving. And they all had a very different way of life. And I was very harmed in that household. I lived with my father and my step family, and I received a lot of physical, mental, emotional, and I'll pause if you can edit it out if you'd like, but also sexual harm. So I would go to my father and I would ask him, what do I do? And he unfortunately chose a path of spiritual bypassing. And he would instruct me with some very deep spiritual practices. So this is where we join together. What is the path of mindfulness in family? I was a child, four to nine, faced with the decision of how do I survive harm within my household? The instruction I was receiving was a spiritual instruction. Love them, have compassion for them, all of which I took to heart and I tried it and it didn't stop the harm, but it did show me that there is always a choice. So there's also the choice of fighting back. There's also the choice of telling more helpful adults who could help a child. There are many, many, many options, but the spiritual option was always in the forefront between my father and me. The helpfulness of that is that I can choose to be mindful in very intense situations. On the other side of that, everybody is worth being cared for, being loved and respected, and being safe at home and in other environments. So there's a, there's a spectrum of experience that I had as a very young person. I never veered away from spirituality. But part of the work I do as an adult is to always hold the entire human spectrum of age and diversity because we are all worth feeling good about ourselves. And I would posit the advice your father was giving you to go deeper spiritually is perhaps more appropriate for an adult and perhaps for a child. One needs to intervene. I was speaking with a 14-year-old who had severe mental health issues, and she was saying, I just needed someone to ask me questions. I just needed someone to see inside of me to understand how much trauma was going on. She did not know how to express it. And one of the things that it sounds like you're saying, being so incredibly transparent and honest, and this is something that unfortunately other children and adults have experienced, she said, If someone had asked me, if I had known how to express myself verbally, if I had known who I was a little more solidly, things might have been different. I might have found solutions faster. So how does that resonate with you? All of our stories are unique. 
And so I don't know about other people, but I do know about myself. And I do know that the abuse I was receiving was so strong that the teachers at my school noticed, and they did many things to try to intervene, including feeding me, including taking me home when it was unsafe to walk, and including sending the police to our home numerous times, none of which worked, none of which penetrated the family system. Now, somebody else's family, one of those those things might have been helpful. For my family, the walls against help were so thick that really nobody could get through. So I accept my destiny there and also my free will. And my free will is that I choose to help people. You gave the range from four to nine. Why do you say between four and nine and what happened afterwards? Well, my father, partly because of my complaining and personal struggle, and partly because of his own journey and his own path through life, and many other details included, he realized it was an unsafe environment for two of his children. My younger sister and I were in danger. My father was eventually able to recognize that. And he went to my mom and he said, Hey, if I leave, the children on your doorstep one morning, would you take them in? And she said, yes, of course. What do you mean? And that started the process of switching custody to my mother. My mother married a man in order to have the funds to provide for us. And then at nine, I was able to live in a safe home. Question was going to be what changed so that you are now such a functional, such a loving person. We all know the scenarios that could have been, and yet what your choices were, they're all more proactive and towards the positive. Why Mm -hmm. do you think that happened? Do you think it's because you were able to live with your mother for some more formative years? I do think that helped. I really needed a break. I needed a break from the harm, but I took all of the things I could not do at home And they all went towards school and scholastic achievement. And I was an avid reader, very young. I really listened to my teachers. Like I would have lived at school if I could have. And it was a safe place for me. And my third grade teacher was able to find that very special point where I knew and I didn't know. And she was able to push me right there. And it was so shocking because nobody else had done so. So I was eight, nine, and I was floored that she was instructing me in things that I did not yet understand. And I needed that because it kept me alive. It kept me going. It kept me choosing to learn forever. This call of the um, zone of proximal development. And mm-hmm. a lot of teachers don't know how to do that. And so you were incredibly lucky to have had a teacher who knew up to what point you were comfortable and then to push you where you were a little uncomfortable. And yet you found your, you kept finding your balance because it seems like you trusted her. And so you were able to progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it also sounds like school was the safest place for you, even though by the time you went to live with your mother and her new husband, it was better but the teachers were the ones it sounds like who really saw you from the beginning and that you, so your focus was the school is going to save me. Your story is unfortunately not unique. It is unique in how it happens. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately other children 
experience things, experience abuse at home, sexual, emotional, how can we help them outside of home? How can we help give them tools so that they learn from very young ages, even in their teenage years, you can reach teenagers just as much as you can reach younger students. What kind of techniques could we use in the classroom reign? What would you suggest? It is so crucial. It is imperative to see the students, to really see the person inside of the student. And this is based on research. This is based on trauma-informed learning, trauma-informed teaching, trauma-informed healing. If a child at any age has a kind adult who can see them and the child feels seen by that person, it makes a difference for their choices in the moment and moving forward. It just needs to be one adult. It would be better if there were more, but it just needs to be one. You got it. You got it. Part of my education is as a therapist, as an expressive arts therapist. And within that body of knowledge, there's a lot of learning about trauma, how it affects family systems and individuals, and how to heal from it and with it. Some of my favorite teachers in the world of trauma are Peter Levine, and there's a whole list of things that you look for when meeting with a traumatized person. What what was their childhood life like or what is their life like right now? And there's a checklist, a very simple checklist. I think of 10 things and you need to know how those 10 things are showing up or showed up in the past because then you know what kind of resilience is already built in to the person. My experience with trauma education is so embedded in psychophysiology through biofeedback and somatics. It's embedded in the expressive arts, how to use art to heal, in um, very traditional psychotherapy, family systems work, and that sort of thing, child development. I love human development with the whole spectrum. So these are very vague and general terms, but just to give you a sense This is what I look at when I'm addressing trauma in myself or in another person. And is this the foundation of Peter Levine's teaching? Because I'm I'm wondering why he was so fundamental to your philosophy or your practice. His approach, which is psychophysiological, so using the body to heal the mind and heart, to allow the trauma that is stuck in the body like an animal who can shake it off. He teaches human beings to shake off their trauma as well in a very respectful way. A very simple one would be very lightly tapping the body and saying, this is me. This is my body. I love my body. And practices that are psychophysiological like that are what one would find in Peter Levine's work. Is there anything that might translate appropriately to the classroom with that? Yes, absolutely. It's the power of literally shaking it off. We are gifted with a body of skeletal muscles. These are the large muscles that are like our shoulder muscles and our arm muscles and our leg muscles, the big girthy muscles that allow us to walk and run and move around and dance. The other thing we can do with our muscles is we can jump around and shake our bodies. And when we jump around and shake our bodies, those skeletal muscles have to let go of the bone. Now, not all the way because we're intact. So we're not harming ourselves. We're just shaking those large muscles so that they can release 
their physical tension. So when we are experiencing trauma as a young person, there are ways that we hold our bodies to brace against what we're expecting. And if we're expecting harm, our bodies reflect that. Now to get through that, it's important to find a kind and effective way to release the tension that holds the contraction. We can also consider that muscles only do two things. They relax, they contract, and they don't do the, they don't do both at the same time. They do one or the other. So when we take a contracted muscle and we shake it, that muscle relaxes and it releases whatever tension is holding it tight. And it gives the muscle an option of behavior. So the muscle begins to have a different neuro connection, meaning neuromuscular connection with the brain. And the muscle can then decide, do I want to relax or do I want to contract? And that's part of the path of healing. So if I begin my class with dancing, or if I, I find that my students are very tense before an exam or for any reason, and I put on a song and we, we begin to dance, during that dance, they might be relaxed, but their bodies have memories. The muscles will probably contract again if we don't teach them to relax. So does it have to be a cognitive partnership with the muscles and with the movement? There are different ways of working with that. One response I have is simply do it more often. Every day at the beginning of class, have a shake off. It can be 90 seconds. It doesn't have to be long. Stand up, shake it off, sit down, do the work. It could be a weekly song. So then once a week, they actually get to dance for one song, which is usually around three or four minutes. When we're working with muscle memory, it is not necessary for the brain to know, like for us to know in word thoughts, what the muscles are doing. Muscle memory is beyond word thoughts. Muscle memory is nonverbal. So we can work to instruct relaxation, which is wonderful. Deep breathing, three breaths before you pick up your pencil. But it's the memory of picking up the pencil or the pen and being successful that's gonna create the relaxation when it's a stressful activity. So one technique you're saying, and before they do the principal part of the lesson, ask them to take deep breaths. That's absolutely one way to apply it. Well, let's just talk about breath then, because there are a lot of different breath work. And for me, breath work is fundamental. Can you give us a couple of other techniques that are possible? Something easy that a teacher and students could do together. Now, I am aware that teacher and student could mean so many different things. It could mean so many different ages and different types of classroom. But just to answer with a broad stroke, there is the beauty of taking three breaths. The simple instruction is any kind of breath. Just take three of them, three breaths. Something that's more advanced is take three belly breaths. So actually take the hands and place them on the belly Feel the belly enlarge with the inhale and feel the belly shrink on the exhale and do that three times. And then we can get more advanced from there. But the three breath magic I find so beautiful and a very quick story about this is that that teaching is actually from my uncle Rick, who was a smoke jumper in Alaska, fire chief, jumping out of airplanes and helicopters with a chainsaw to put out forest fires. And he said to me one day, you can do anything, Rain, if you just take three breaths first. That's powerful. 
that's something to process. I mean, there's also a practice of drawing that's therapeutic, we can say on a spiritual level. Is this only for our youngest students? At any age, this could be preschool, high school, college, graduate work, it doesn't even matter. It's just the act of drawing something that the drawer would enjoy is a practice that is infused with self-acceptance. Let me see myself on the page just for a moment. And from that moment forward, the learner gets to move with their whole self into the lesson. So you're saying, from what I understand, give them simply the opportunity to draw themselves so that they are literally reflected back to themselves. Is that right? Yes. However, Rain, what if they they don't come from a home environment where their being is accepted and they have a rather negative, distorted view of who they are? So their picture that they draw could be dark, could be negative, could yes. be a bit troublesome. What would you do? Yes. It's not going to make them happy to see themselves in a negative aspect, will it? Well, let's consider this. What if we have a trauma-informed teacher? What if we have a teacher who is introspective and willing to ask for help and interested in who their students are? And that student at whatever age draws the dark picture, which through the expressive arts, we find that just the act of getting that darkness out onto a page can be helpful. What I hear you alluding to is what about when it's not helpful? What about when that person sees their own darkness and they feel fear? or it triggers a trauma response inside of them. Or it's perpetuating the same thoughts that are going on in their head. And so they have no way of veering off from those negative thoughts. We need to help students. We need to help children. We need to help people find ways of stopping those voices in their heads. If it's not being helpful, it's not serving their highest purpose. And that's what I'm trying to figure out how the other thing I would like to take one step back because you said something so important. What if, what if a teacher was trained in trauma and what if a teacher was able to be introspective and ask questions, how can I help my students? That would be our ideal world. And a lot of times we don't live in our ideal world, especially in school. And there's a huge assumption that teachers are trained in trauma, in mental health, in emotional well-being. And the truth is teachers are not usually trained in that. And so that's one of the reasons I've asked you to come because you are the expert in this. And by expert, I, I know that there's always learning going on, especially in your case, but you really have profoundly delved into this and can give us some reasonably appropriate tools to use. If it were my classroom and if this were happening and I noticed, ooh, okay, that one has some darkness, that one meaning that person. So I would choose to see the person as a person. That's key actually. And that is something that's available to every teacher and every person everywhere to see people as people. So if I were to see that happening in my classroom, I would go the next step. It's not just a drawing. I would then write some affirmations on the board or however it's appropriate for my classroom. I accept myself fully. I love myself. I can ask for help when I need it. Now, those three statements are just examples that I'm coming up with on the spot, but they're true for everybody. So they are not singling out the person who drew the darkness because really there may be other people who are drawing darkness that I'm not recognizing as darkness. That's the magic of artwork. Who knows what the person meant when they drew the unicorn? Could mean anything, you know? So 
finding three affirmations that are true for a human being that could also help the person that you feel concerned about will begin the process of looking in a different direction, the process of help, the process of self-acceptance, and the process of love, the process of self-love. But what you're saying is very powerful. If we could see our students as people, as people who need our connection, then we will be able to intuitively find ways of reaching them. And you also said something that is critical, make it general. Because I was talking to Michael Lacey, who does graded books, and his books are about bullying because he was bullied cruelly when he was younger. And when he goes in to talk to now 13-year-olds about this book, he knows who the children are that are bullied. He doesn't know who the bullies are, but he knows who the ones that are bullied. And so he he needs to make eye contact with them, but speak very generally. So that they know that he connects with them, but he is not singling them out. And so what you're saying is, that's very important. The other thing I hear you saying is, if we can see our students as people, if we can ignore the behavior, especially when it's not appropriate, and see them as someone who is just reaching out and needs connection, and it might be an appropriate way of finding connection, we can, again, find ways to help them become self-aware, become more responsible and more compassionate to the people around them. So you've mentioned movement, you've mentioned affirmations, art, a little bit of music, or that might've been more me. Mm -hmm. But I agree, music is wonderful for all of us in different ways. You live in an idyllic place, you you (laughs) live in, and you love being in nature. Can you tell us how we could incorporate that element of the universe in our classrooms? Absolutely. So there is the option of bringing nature into the classroom. It could be a simple plant that is often a hardy plant, like an aloe or a plant that doesn't need a lot of light or a plant that doesn't need a lot of water. But just having the plant in the classroom can instill a love for nature, an interest in kindness to other beings. The class can collaborate on taking care of the plant. There's often some sort of plant that will work for that purpose. The class can name the plant depending on the age of the students. Like it can be a, it can be a lesson. It can be a thing, a, another being in the room. Sometimes I speak with parents and other healers who are in very urban areas. And you're right. I'm not in an urban area right now. I live in a forest. My child goes to a Waldorf school He's nine. He has the opportunity to go to a farm once a week and care for the animals. So we really do live a blessed lifestyle and not everybody lives that kind of blessing, but they have other blessings. So it is possible to go for a walk in an urban area and notice what plants grow in the cracks of the sidewalk and become curious about them. It is possible for anyone all over the world to notice the sky It could be a polluted area or a clean air area, but you can notice what is in the sky. We can notice things like temperature. We can notice things like precipitation or lack thereof. How many days without rain has it been? How many days of rain has there been? There are different ways of connecting with the natural world that are very, very simple and very easily overlooked. And that is the gift of spirituality, the way that I see it. It's beginning to attune to the things we don't normally attune to. And it doesn't have to be spiritual. It's just the practice of paying attention 
what's almost invisible unless we direct our attention to it. Which is what mindfulness is, right? Yes, that's right. And so what I believe you're saying is be aware, notice, verbalize things that your senses pick up, but maybe you wouldn't consciously break down unless someone said, let's talk about the clouds in the sky. Let's talk about how dark um, the city is today. Let's talk about the fact that there's no one cleaning the streets. Let's talk about the plants growing out of the cracks in the street. Yes. Yes. One plant. And as you're saying, even teenagers would love to name a plant. They could have a you know little game about what name they're going to give or change the name every week. There you go. Give the plant the character, give it a personality, talk about it, use it for all the lessons. I really like that idea. I'm going to start using that a lot. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) I hope you let me know how it goes. What else were you thinking that would be important to share in this context of helping educators work with students or learners? One of the topics that is very dear to my heart that I would like to share with those who are teaching or who are interested in teaching is the power of inclusivity, which takes a lot of patience. And it even takes some introspection of the teacher to look at a body of students and to consider how do all of these different people belong in this group and making sure that each person has some sort of experienced value or what is being learned together. And I say this with the understanding that sometimes you get a group of kids who are all like pretty much already gelled. They either know each other or they are automatically drawn to each other and they learn well together. But there are those other experiences, which are also common, where there's one outlier or a few outliers or a bunch of small groups who all relate to each other, but not necessarily to the group as a whole. And the beauty of learning how to be an educator so that the whole room belongs to each other and to themselves is that everybody gets to know that they have a place in the world because a classroom becomes a reflection of who am I in the world and how wonderful when a teacher can take that on to hold the whole room with empathy, awareness, generosity. And however the lessons go, there can be a sense of peace that is a greater teaching, a greater teaching than the score on a paper. You're talking about connecting, you're talking about connection, and you're talking about Again, asking a teacher to remember that these are people and that having them feel seen and heard and appreciated above all is critical. And there is one strategy that I would say that they could use to empower that whole dynamic, which is simply every day, give each student a piece of paper with the name of another classmate. And they write, I like blank because something very simple. And then the teacher can read these or the teacher can give those little cards to that person. And just feeling seen for those three or four minutes could change the life of a student. Would you agree? What a a beautiful idea. I think that is a very exciting experiment. I would love to see what happens. I've heard of things like that working very well. So if we consider a music class where the children are learning instruments, there may be some very skilled musicians and there may be some musicians who struggle with how to make music that sounds like what somebody else would call music. 
And this can be a great challenge. How do all of these different expressions of music get held in one musical room? But if a teacher is so willing to find a place for every musician in that room, what a beautiful symphony. Yeah, I think we're going to we're going to end on that rain because that is absolutely gorgeous. So I can't thank you enough for again for your generosity in coming and sharing so just a little of your vast knowledge of becoming and getting to know the people we are. I'm going to make sure that people know where to reach you because you do distance work, you do people I want to be flying in and coming into one of your retreats, right? And I've told you that and I mean it. One day I'm going to do it. Um So thank you so much for sharing all this. Thank you. Yes, please come to a retreat. It'd be wonderful to have you. So that's our talk with Rain Elizabeth Stinkney and her masterful suggestions on expelling trauma through body, breath, and artwork. One of the most memorable tips from the talk that I remember and correct me if you remember something else even more powerful is if you ask someone for help who doesn't give it to you, ask others until you get the help you need. For the rest of her easy to implement, please go to the show notes and download the PDF I've suggested with suggestions on classroom activities so you can use this podcast with your students, both the content and the audio. For other fascinatingly instructive conversations like this, please go to Doorways to Learning with Donna and more activities to promote collaborative learning in the classroom with a strong effective domain, go to scaffoldingmagic.com. In the meantime, have fun in your classrooms and at home and see you here for more.